I've been following Bitcoin up from the day one. I've been following sort of Ethereum and now my name is Nitin. I recently published a book on this called Blockchain for Business. It's blockchain, so chain of blocks. You have to have an asset that you're trading between multiple parties, hence the peer-to-peer -peer network, the emergence of decentralized exchanges, the lending protocols, the liquidity pools. And as an American, I take pride in our financial system. I think it's done a, you know, transparency attracts capital. That even the new emerging crypto finance industry powered with blockchain needs financial services, which is on-chain and off-chain interoperability and harmonized operational framework is the last mile problem that we need to solve. On-chain finance to me is the future. Nitin, thanks a lot for coming on the Proof of Work podcast. I got connected with you because there are a lot of similarities between us. We both belong to the third culture identity, having our roots in India, born in India, and then we were educated overseas. You're an Indian American, I'm an Indian Australian. We both are in the blockchain space. Uh, you're in the blockchain space much earlier than me and you're a certified OG in that space. I was much later, but uh, I'm in the blockchain space as well. And the other common thread between us is that we both come to India to teach blockchain to MBA students at Masters Union Business School, sure. which is where I got to know about you from Sudanshu. And uh, after that, you know, I, you know, Googled you and I was like amazed that of such an impeccable and impressive profile that you had, you know, after having a stellar decades of career in technology companies in US, you also have got an impressive patent portfolio as well. And I haven't sure. got a single person in my podcast so far that have got at least one patent. So it's my honor to have you on the Proof of Work podcast and a very warm welcome to you. Uh, Shiv, thank you so much for your kind words and, and kind welcome. Uh, and, and likewise, I think we have a lot in common as I learn more about you. And I think both our experiences that's tied to Master's Union, which to me has certainly been a very rewarding experience as I engage with students and don't tell anyone, but actually I get more out of it than I give because I learned enormous amount with sure. the cohorts when their questions and their curiosity that, that yeah. that's nothing but inspiring. So glad to be here and looking forward to this, uh, to this chat. Amazing, Nathan. You know, uh, it's interesting that you said that and it's something that, uh, so Australian tertiary education is very different to American university education. That's what I noticed when I went to NYU. And it's something that I learned at NYU when I was studying that over there, so I did brand strategy from the CEO of Jaguar Land Rover US. Uh, he was teaching us brand strategy. And uh, somebody asked him the question that you're the CEO of such a big company. Why do you come every Saturday? We used to have our classes on Saturday. He used to be like, why don't you come on Saturday to teach us? And he said, something which really made me want to teach as well eventually, which was exactly what you're saying, that I come and teach you guys because you guys are the young generation and I yeah. get a lot more from you. I share my experience, but I get to learn a lot more from you than what I would if I stay in my you know, boardroom and speak with my employees. So it's True. a value exchange. And that is something that I don't necessarily see it in among Australian educators because it's a very led back country you know, nine to five, uh, we just chilled then afterwards. But in America, I really loved that even such marquee professors and uh, corporate, uh, you know, leaders, they love to give back and teach and get the value exchange. So I love what you sure. said as well. I feel the same way. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Now let's start 
right from the start, Nathan, like you've got such an impressive and extensive patent portfolio. Like I want to start from yeah. there because it's something sure. that intrigues me. And you've covered frontier technologies, not only limited to blockchain, AI, data science inventions and so forth as well. I'm very curious yeah. and I'm hoping that you could walk me through your creative process and principles yeah. that guide your inventive work that eventually lead yeah. to patents. Yeah. No, I think that's a great journey. So let me start there. I collectively, I think I have about 170 patents uh, in the in the lifetime and I've paused in the last year or so because I now work financial services and it's a little bit different cultural. Working in a tech, there was a cultural element of how you bring the innovation and how do you trademark the you know, innovation and bring the innovation to market. And what's interesting also is that I, I had many careers in my life, starting with, you know, early days of middleware, enabling e-commerce, which is to solve the old mainframe problems and then eventually moving to uh, cloud and mobile. And I stumbled upon blockchain and I would say the last decade plus has been the longest I've spent time in one space. And I think, uh, just like I think the old adage that Steve Jobs said that dots will connect, I was able to source from that learning from what I learned in terms of the innovation of the entire hype cycle and adoption curve of new technologies. So there are many occasions where we did things at IBM, which was way ahead of its time because it's cool. The innovation was there. And we would envision all the use cases and we would just say, hey, let's protect these ideas because we've been whiteboarding or we've been at this for a few months. And that led to, uh, for us to go and write and it became a creative outlet. And after I would look into technology as it matures and jump to the next you know, wave, I would do the same thing all over again. We would spend time in labs, we would go spend time with clients, and interestingly enough, in all my roles, I did have a duality of my role where I would spend time with innovation and would spend my you know, time with tech. But at the same time, I would go to client sites and spend time with clients and helping them understand the impact of technology, the impact of all these new innovations. And you would get all these questions uh, that the clients would ask. So just like we both are discussing as our, our, our sort of seasonal teaching experience have been so rewarding, yeah. I would say that standing in front of clients and whiteboarding and answering their tough question is has also been rewarding in the primary impetus of my patent portfolio. And I would come back and, or on the flight back, uh, I would just think about those questions. I'm like, you know, those are really good questions and I really didn't have an answer. And there are times, and I would not lie, I would hand wave and I would make stuff up only because that's what creative people do. And then I would sit in the plane and write the thesis and I would write to say, hey, what is the real problem and solution? I would also give credit to IBM because there was a whole patent process in IBM where you were not only encouraged to document and trademark these innovations, but you were incentivized. So we would get not a lot, but a couple of grand and you would have plateaus, so you would eat certain plateaus and, and that encouraged you to spend. And we formed a mining group inside of, inside of IBM. I would be part of multiple groups who are interested in, let's say quantum, or you would be interested in AI and machine learning. What it also did, um, Shiv is we would spend like two hours every week in ideating through what we want to patent and we would do that week after week and you would then realize that your repertoire of knowledge because you're thinking through the problems that are either not there or it's coming from a client workshop and you would then say okay let, let me go and solve this problem and it was it was something where oftentimes in the real world you fight for budgets and you fight for resources yeah Patenting was completely free of that. You didn't have to think of a problem, document it, document the steps. And you became quite good at doing that. 
And you realize that after doing week after week and week after week for almost a decade, uh, it became almost second nature. So when I would go to my clients, that process that you would go through, I would apply that process in real time in solving those issues. And you would actually gain the confidence and a trusted, you know, advisor relationship with the client. So it, it was all interlinked. Sure. I would say you bring your work, you understand your work. And I also was fortunate again, working for a tech company to have an opportunity uh, in being the front lines and understanding the tech and, and evangelizing it and understanding the problems, coming back and creating new products. Uh, it's been nothing but, uh, but fantastic, I would say. So that's, that's in amazing. short, my journey. Yeah, look, thanks a lot. Uh, you've articulated it so concisely, but at the same time, so clearly that uh, like I can I can understand now how, so firstly, IBM, and yeah, one can see it. Like there's often that IBM presents that this is the amount of patents that uh, IBM yeah. now through their employees got. Uh, and uh, so it, it's it's got a culture of innovation and it incentivizes its employees to do it. And once you got the hang of it, you obviously perfected it over time. Uh, you iterated yeah. it more. And my God, I heard it correct, right? You said 170 patents? 170 over to over, I'd say God. a decade or so. Yeah. And it's not it's not that much because you, 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 as a team, you work together and it's a teamwork. It's not just one guy yeah. doing it, but we all yeah. come with our own ideas and documents, ideas and discuss and debate. Uh, but you can imagine that if you file four patents a month, for example, as a, as a wow. filtration process, you learn so much in the process. True. Sure. And it became a creative outlet because not every client engagement or not every department offered you that level of creativity. So we had to find yeah. other avenues to do it. So this was yes. an idea for us. Wow, so. amazing. Look, I was not gonna ask this question. I didn't have that in mind, but now since you've said it, I'm like curious, what do you think about IBM as a company now? Cause it gets a lot of slack as not being yeah. innovative. And when you yeah. like, you know, you've said it that it has got this innovative culture, it incentivizes its employees to produce these yeah. patents and it still produces a lot of patents but still its image is not yeah. of uh, you know keeping up with the metas or with a lot of silicon valley companies what is your take yeah. on that yeah that's a great question and so look i've been i spent 22 years with ibm when we were doing when ibm as a company was so high up in technology stack when we were modernizing the commerce and e-commerce led to e-health it led to so this is all transition of internet and evolving internet with providing these platforms for large corporations to do their business processes. That was our high for my last vantage point. And then I think there's a cultural shift that happens and you don't realize the shift almost like a decade later. Got and it. the shift was that you become so successful that you become complacent. Sure. And I believe in the business process management and middleware era and we had Unix servers and you had, this is again, at the, at the peak of the, this is Y2K era, and just before Y2K and after Y2K, the massive focus on every company to put its website front up there and do business, which required you to have business process behind the scene and massive databases. So we had end-to-end -end from hardware to software and consulting services. So you, you had a right like mix of, of technology, talent, and products. And then they decided to do growth by acquisition because it is expensive to build products. Yeah. There's a lot of failure rates and high technology, high risks. And what ended up happening was you begin to dilute that process of thinking, the process of evangelizing, figuring out, and of course, the ability to deal with failures, which is to me a bigger 
which was highly encouraged back in the day. Uh, every tech company said, you know what, we embrace failures because that's how you learn. And so when you lose the DNA of thinking through new products, new areas, and the goal was let's find the gaps and let's go acquire a company and we can blue wash it, which is the term that was used. A decade later, that thinking was gone from the company. So it was very hard for the company to to literally, you know, think on its feet and begin to re sort of allocate its talent to create new products and to really go towards innovation because the thinking was if you don't have it, you just go buy the company because we're big enough to do that. Sure. And that strategy, in my opinion, over time, not only diluted the intellectual sort of foray into new technologies and new areas, you also diluted the fact that people were encouraged to ask, let me go for a startup that gets acquired Understood. by IBM and that's an, that's an easy way out because I'm not able to do any way. So all the people who are truly innovators, they went looking for companies. And that is true for Google. That's true for, for the longest time for Microsoft. It's all acquisition because you became so big that innovation became increasingly uh, hard. And I think now um, they're still reeling in from that. They had to shrink, uh, at least from my vantage point, from uh, to just about cloud, which they're late to cloud. So all the decisions they made, I still think that Culture is something that permeates generations. Agreed. I mean, me and your Indians, and we still embody the same culture no matter how long we've lived uh, abroad. Agreed. I would say that that's the challenge, that you still have the same culture of thinking, except that culture is not substantiated by resources and and the support that needs for the culture to flourish. Understood. So think of it as like a tribe, tribal culture. And that's where I think my last interaction with them was that they're amazing people but they are severely restricted from their ability to grow and voice an opinion that yeah. allows them to be able to do that without any repercussions. I think. Got it. So no, that yeah. that makes sense. And thanks a lot. That's a education for me. What you said on, you know, what really happened. Uh, as uh, MBA graduates, we still love to do K business case studies. So this is a good <laughs> mini case True. study to know that. Another IBM question, since you mentioned, you know, I'm always intrigued by IBM and these behemoth organizations. Now, 22 years at IBM, and I remember my first, I guess, foray to, you can say artificial intelligence or doing predictive yeah. analytics was using IBM Watson. And now Watson, we're yeah. living in an artificial intelligence nirvana moment now. I'm keen yeah. to get your take, like... You would have obviously been aware when IBM Watson was being developed and it had its heyday yeah. when it won the American game show Jeopardy as well and so forth. What do you think, how, how does IBM feel that they were so ahead in artificial intelligence against other people and now nobody talks about IBM, whereas other startups, yeah. you know, uh, they get funding of I'm not talking about OpenAI, but like other startups yeah. are getting funding of $1 billion and they yeah, yeah. just got like an idea. So what is your take to it among your IBM colleagues or your just take it towards it? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time in grad school on AI, by the way, and it's dated, of course, because it's been 20 plus years since I graduated. But I would say that hurts. It hurts because I was in Austin and Watson was built in Austin in the same floor oh, that wow. I was sitting at. So I would meet oh, these wow. engineers and we would hang out and you had the species like risks processors and they were looking into data data and how do you sort of you know figure out these nodes and neural networks that go into uh, not only that but there were many such projects which were hidden in fact in 2019 this is as early as 2019 
the general AI, which is a holy grail of AI, you know, ability for you to have a conversation with AI, like me and you are having, with context, with the ability to context switch, with the ability to actually have intelligence introduced into this uh, from a domain perspective, we have something called Project Debater, which is far superior at the time than what ChatGPT is today. Wow. But as I mentioned to you earlier, that timing in innovation is everything. Oftentimes, you're way ahead of your times. There's neither market nor commercial, you know, commercial models for you to monetize that innovation. So what do you do? You shelve it, or you spend enough money on it till you realize, ah, this is not yielding any results. And I have seen that in my career, year after year, year after year, including blockchain. Blockchain was something which we all, I pretty much spend all my political capital in, and I and and I'm thankful because IBM actually did make the investment. Uh, you know, and as much as as vocal I am, vocal critic of IBM, I'm also a massive supporter, and I'm thankful yeah. for experiences that I've had in giving me the opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten any other company. Uh, and they made that investment, but they were so ahead of its times, and the expectations was multi-billion-dollar expectation. That to me is a is a bigger issue, and it hurts. Literally, it hurts because I've seen some amazing projects, amazing brilliance. I have personally worked on a lot of amazing models, even during the large language and GPT-3 and GPT-4 and 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 so on and so forth. While I was figuring out the future of finance in the last two years in IBM research, we were figuring out, at least in blockchain context, is if if Shiv opens a a wallet, what is the probability of Shiv engaging in a financial crime? It's like, almost like a minority report like like structure. Yeah. <laughs> All this is possible with AI and yeah. and we were able to do those things. The only challenge was how do you commercialize and that's where I think is these the art and science of taking yeah. technology to the next level, I think. Yeah. Look, I totally resonate with you when you say that innovation is all about timing. We obviously know about electric cars. We obviously know about social networks, how you know Facebook eventually killed MySpace and so forth. Yes, there were unique strategies and unique product features that made them do it, but it was also about the market timing. But when we look very recently, I mean, I still get amazed that uh, Twitter, I think it was Twitter, right? That sold musically. And then TikTok just became such a yeah. big thing. And it was pretty much vines, like vines and t TikTok were pretty much the same thing, except like a few seconds of difference. But TikTok is like such a massive cultural thing now. And political debates happen about TikTok. It's all yeah. about the timing. Yeah. And people are referencing TikTok. I'm like, why would I use this as a reference? In, no matter how good it is. You have, you know, there's another movie, like if you look at BlackBerry, same example. Yes. BlackBerry was ahead of its Amazing times. Enough. Yeah. Uh, iPhone just killed it within a matter of yeah. a week or two sure. yeah. in terms of its presence. And then you yeah. have Kodak moments, which is a moniker sure. we use all the time. Yeah. Now, and so you see example after example, um, and you realize that at least in some level, all the education we have in MBA in terms of failures, everything else, it's out the window when you go to the corporate world only because the focus is revenue. Yes. It focuses, you know, what do we do in near term or next quarter in spite of all the education that promotes otherwise. True. We all fall victim to it. So yeah. there's only a few brave souls who can fight it. Yeah. But you need to have enough political capital at yes. your disposal to be able to have that yeah. fight. Otherwise, you'll always lose, right? So, yeah, true. True. Well said. Now, coming to the flavor of the year when it comes to tech, AI, and you've been in blockchain for a while, I want to dig deep towards the convergence of these two technologies. And you, you're you somebody who's, you know, have got patents in both. Yeah. How do you see yeah. these technologies coming together to transform finance and business? 
Like, where do you see the biggest impact and opportunity for the conversions of AI and blockchain? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I actually wrote at least an article on this. Uh, I labeled it blockchain at, at the nexus of technology. So if you look at blockchain, sort of blockchain stands to accelerate the adoption of emerging technologies, including AI and some elements of cloud and IoT, because many of them are in the edges or providing some level of computational framework. And blockchain essentially ties them together as a transaction system. So it sort of bridges the whole missing element of trust, which is what blockchain brings, uh, which I think for any business, it's required to fully embrace these technologies at scale. So there's no tech business that's only using one technology, not the others. There's a combination of things. They may or may not know it, or they may use some commercial product that's using a combination of cloud AI or analytics and IoT and, and now some elements of digital asset, which behind the scenes is, is blockchain. So in many cases, blockchain network stands to benefit from integration of all these technologies, right? This is the nexus element. And AI stands out because I look into blockchain as becoming a transaction data platform. Because if you're yes. transacting and you have wallets and you have you know, assets and assets have descriptors, and we are ensuring that there's no double spend happening, which means that every time I create a block, it's a series of data as a computational model, and I'm linking these blocks through cryptography, yes. and that protects it, keeps it safe, okay. you know, the basics of it, right? Sure. And so that sort of creates a business network, and business network implies that you have multiple parties on, the, on that network who are transacting and conducting businesses, which used to be the only way of doing through business process management uh, as, as a model. So you have partners, you have competitors, you have service providers, on a blockchain network. And using an AI, and these are the assumptions that I make, that using an AI, the network participants should not only be able to gain insights because now they have naturally linked data. Blockchain link is nothing but a linked list. True. Uh, but also be able to derive decisions that they cannot achieve alone. Okay. So the fact that you are looking into velocity of transactions exponentially increasing and veracity of data as a result yeah. exponentially increasing the old systems that were either batch-driven systems, these are systems that consume data and compute on off, off, off hours, that is no longer an option for many businesses. So AI-driven transactions will give rise to new business model and new significant automation opportunities, whether it's detecting financial crimes in real time yeah. or whether it is identifying that this, this transaction worth doing whether it adds to my bottom line or it's essential for any business for us to do. So you have business analytics, which is the goal of most businesses to understand their engagement with the ecosystem, their customers, their business partners, or looking into thwarting the cybersecurity issues around financial crimes. Because at the end of the day, blockchain is a system which is meant to disseminate yeah. value because we already have internet that disseminates information. Sure. So yeah. I would just extrapolate that and I focus on things like data ownership as a use case, can I ascertain data ownership so I don't have issue with who really owns the LinkedIn post and can I attribute to it? I look into trusted AI models. Can I take the AI models? Do I know the source of data and can blockchain provide the trust framework? Yeah. I look into explainable AI, which is a huge issue, which I was dealing with IBM towards the end, is can my AI insights, which is the output of AI, can that be explained? And I can explain but that as long as the lineage of data and I can attribute my insights to that lineage of data. So these are some of the areas that I've envisioned and done some modeling. Yeah. Uh, and we begin to see uh, new tools coming in, in the in the crypto space. But sure. my goal is to be able to bring that into traditional finance space, if that makes sense. Traditional finance space, got it. 
I'm interested to get your take. What do you think about another frontier technology that uh, I don't think we have kind of realized its full potential? Back in the day, it used to be the flavor before blockchain and AI, you know, came into the picture. And that's the Internet of Things, IoT. So, yeah, blockchain, AI, IoT, the convergence of all these three when it comes to urban planning. Yeah. So it's interesting, right? Because uh, we nowadays the cool thing is ABC is uh, AI, blockchain, and cloud. Uh, yeah. Only because you need the cloud infrastructure, AI is the transition, uh, blockchain transition infrastructure, and AI is all the insights element to it. IoT was cool, and I did work with IoT for quite some time. In fact, I asked to carry the sensors to showcase the amount of data in terms of sensing temperatures, and I would add mobile devices, and I could, I could yeah. provide all these things with NFCs and Bluetooth and so on and so forth. And we did envision, I actually worked on many projects, including uh, some of the notable ones happen to be in Scania or AT&T providing the new age for machine-to-machine -machine transactions. So, for example, wow. you yeah. do have trucks crossing borders or trucks going through through toll gates. And today, that whole model is around through some sticker. But yes. if I go into an increasingly robotic world where, again, this also includes AI, then yeah. can these robots or can these robotic constructs, not necessarily a physical robot, but software bots, for example, can they engage in a transaction and can they be held accountable? So yes. we we talk about this in context of things like smart contract. And I filed actually a bunch of patterns in the space where I look into saying if AI no or sorry, if if these new nodes come to, onto a network, IoT nodes, whether the IoT represents sort of a network of sensors or network of of, of bots that are supposed to communicate with each other for whether it's distance calculation or whether it's figuring out the inventory levels in a warehouse, which is what Amazon uses a lot. We try to figure out as to how do we derive the value transfer mechanisms, including some of the elements of saying that if if a robot is is managing a section of a warehouse and some assets like some say pallets of 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 uh, of some material moves from one section of a warehouse to another section of a warehouse that a robot is managing, yes, can we then do inventory levels at the robotic level because now you have in charge of those sort of swim lanes or of those sections in a, in a warehouse and so on and so forth. You have airlines, yeah. airlines have parts, parts get replaced. So we envision these use cases from IoT world. I think just like everything else, that IoT has reached a level of maturity where we don't talk about it anymore. We take it for granted. Sure. So okay. I worked on a project for supply supply chain where cross-border or global supply chain where you have sensors on these massive shipping containers and as shipping containers went through different ports, there was no need for the tax authorities or custom authorities to check every container because those containers could be have with IoT locks and you could have a satellite sure. connectivity to it. And as long as tampered, not tampered with, you could trust the certificate from the origin yeah. and the contents and you don't have to inspect those things. So it, it streamlined sure. the on-the-port process. We envisioned all these use cases, but I think it's, to me, to your point, Shiv, we don't talk about it because I think it reached, reached a level of maturity where it's taken for granted. We don't okay. talk about TCP IP anymore. It's taken for granted. We don't talk about yeah, DNS yeah, sure. anymore, even though yeah. we use it all the time in every yeah. aspect of our, of our framework. Framing. Yeah. So no, no, I totally agree with you. I, I guess uh, I was more uh, going towards that. I don't hear people talking about incorporating blockchain immutable database in extracting the data from those IoT sensors. Like I yeah. haven't heard much about it. Is that also? very profoundly used uh, in urban planning or? It's not, it's, it's, not, it's not used yet only because the supply chain systems, you know, the change is hard. 
Yeah. But uh, we have tried like meat tra- meat processing in the U.S. between China. I, you know, yeah. this is looking into data coming from uh, ship. But I, I won't I wouldn't say it's ubiquitous. Sure. I would say that there are uh, it's all value. For example, if I'm dealing with high value goods, I yeah. will start using blockchain in it. Like we look at olive oil or very expensive, uh, very expensive um, sort of uh, wine or olive oil. Uh, we have technologies now that provides verification validation to see it's not tampered with. And that supply chain is actually sitting on blockchain to say you can verify to say the origination of this expensive wine or expensive scotch yeah. or or luxury goods, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Uh, those are sort of seeping in. Sure. And no one really knows. You scan a QR code and you have the entire lineage, yeah. but it's being processed on blockchain. Sure, sure. And that's uh, to be a sign of maturity too, I think. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so look, uh, I one of the... I wouldn't say crypto because they don't have a token, but one of the blockchain startup investments that we did, its uh, name is DigiBuild. And uh, they they were backed by Y Combinator and Harvard University uh, gave some money to them as well. And they build, they, they are basically a construction management suite of tools built out of IBM Hyperledger. And they basically help with supply chain and so forth. And when we were doing due diligence on it, we noticed that the shipping companies and the whole supply chain that happens, they extensively use IBM Hyperledger. So yeah, yeah, to your point about supply chain, I I am aware that uh, blockchain is extensively used, especially enterprise blockchain solutions from IBM is extensively used in those, uh, you know, trading for shipping industry as well. But yeah, like I, I still, uh, apart from Dubai, I haven't really heard many urban city planners utilizing IoT and blockchain together uh, for their urban planning needs. But uh, I'm, you know, looking forward to hearing more case studies, white papers of those success stories. Yeah, in the future. Yeah, and not so much urban planning, but uh, Dubai. I worked in this project when I was at IBM too. Uh, Ijari, which is when you, as an immigrant, which is uh, Dubai has 9 million people, 8 million of them are actually all blue collar, white collar workers uh, and coming into Dubai. And they all have to go through a process of obtaining identification, obtaining leases and then bank accounts. And so there's a whole process called Ijari, which is a lease. It starts from there. You get ID and Emirates ID and then you then obtain. And that process can take, used to take six weeks to eight weeks sometimes. Imagine going in a country to work. And yeah. you're still figuring out your your element. And Dubai, as as a progressive country that it is, and I'm very impressed with what they have done, they shortened their entire cycle to three days. Oh, so from entry to your entire establishment of the country, three days you had all the processing, all the documents to have a home to live, a a, a document, a wow. ID, and other facets. If you want to lease a car, if you want to rent a car, if you want to buy a car, and 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 HRE was used as a proof of residence in most of those use cases. Got it. They completely did the whole thing digitally uh, wow. tied to driver's license. Wow, that's Just amazing. Yeah. I wasn't aware of it. But yeah, like to your point, uh, I went to Dubai for the first time in my life this year. It was my holiday cool. because I was cool. here in India for a while and I was like, I need a holiday, so I'll go to Dubai. And I was amazed. It's such a progressive uh, city. I was just amazed as the infrastructure and the demographic, the diverse demographic of knowledge professionals working over there. So yeah, yeah, that was great. Now you have, you know, consulted and you have advised 
different kinds of clients like in your career like you've advised governments you've advised yeah. regulators and you've obviously you know advised enterprises um on digital assets and tokenized systems yeah. if last year in blockchain and crypto space was the year for stablecoin i think this year among the crypto space the narrative is all about real world tokenized assets that's what sure. i've been hearing a lot that this year everybody is going gaga about real world assets so and you have spoken about it for ages like i've you know read your writings you've been talking about real world tokenized assets for a long time what is your vision for how tokenized finance can expand access and opportunity in emerging economies uh, let's just start with india what do you think about tokenized real world assets in india yeah. so let's let's first take a step back and define what real world assets are so as yeah. you know crypto assets are na crypto native assets the bitcoin ether are product of crypto economic systems these are assets that get generated and it's generated in normal tokenized form True. but we live in a world that has been running for a few hundred years in this modern world which finance has manifested itself and ownership of assets and things have been evolving for quite some time so real world assets are assets that represents are existing which collectively if you combine all the assets about 471 trillion dollars worth of all accountable assets that banks do all around the world so your house your car equities stocks and bonds the whole thing that banks can value essentially and so from india or any other emerging economy perspective there's a lot of friction because a lot of these systems uh barring the west because of the age of many of the countries in the west that digital systems were born and they digitized this in a in a way that you had some record and some you know uh, as opposed to the older world where country with rich history and heritage like india still rely upon the old paperwork that may have happened 200 years ago which is the yeah. only claim you have for an asset and that has to be verified validated so it's a little complex system for us to ascertain a claim on movable and immovable assets so a country like india with the now the most uh, the, the largest population in the world serving the 1.4 plus billion people uh, at a at a level where the bureaucracy itself the bureaucracy itself cannot keep up with the type of transactions you need uh, otherwise the country will stop working and half the time you're spending time in you know in resolving disputes i think something like tokenization of real world assets uh not only solves the issue of trade trust ownership or three tenants then i should be able to buy and sell assets and not have to spend 6 weeks 8 months 10 months 10 years in some cases sure to sell an asset because of disputed claims and so on and so forth so i think country like india and i've again been to 90 plus different countries to understand the space uganda kenya many of them wow. actually are old i would say the commonwealth nation of sorts they have a very old system and uh we have positioned these technologies both uh, blockchain and and digitization efforts uh as an avenue to escape that system and move to the next level where you no longer have to deal with the 60% of case loads in some cases in a country purely tied to your disputes to your property so imagine uh the entire docket of lawsuits are only tied to tied to your false yes. or fraudulent or misappropriated claims that you would have on on various assets and india and kenya and uganda many emerging economies have this big problem whether it's fraud or whether it's nefarious activities and i think tokenization of real world asset helps that but second angle is as we look into not just real estate or cars or ancestral properties or heirloom we're looking into things like modernizing financial 
infrastructure. So while tokenizing an asset, you're not just relying upon a messaging-based system, which is what moves the asset. Uh, I think many countries in India takes the cake in that whole context with UPI and many of the payment systems. Yes. Yes. As an example to the rest of the world, is a real-time payment system. Agreed. Uh, which serves the magnitude of transactions before 1.4 billion plus people. Yeah. Is nothing short of fantastic. And Sweet. India is the only country, you may not know this, which actually has a real-time security settlement system anywhere in the world, except that India doesn't have the capital markets that, let's say, your US and UK and Europe has. Yes. Right? So I see this as one way to uh, not only increase the velocity of money in the system, because now you're tokenizing the e-rupee and CBDC and yep. stablecoin concept that you introduced, but velocity of money also increases economic activity, which leads yes. to a more positive outcome for, for, for a country. And I see some of these converging as the country invests into envisioning these systems that sort of govern the asset registry, the asset movement, and asset claims, so to speak. So I'll sure. pause here, Shiv, to see yeah. if that made sense. Yeah, look, it made sense. And uh, I just want to make a comment. So I never had an Aadhaar card because I left India, you know, at a young age. So I didn't have Aadhaar card and I had only heard about UPI. But last year when I came to India, I got my Aadhaar card. I got my Aadhaar card like only like uh, end of last year. And wow. uh, I then started using UPI then. And yeah. Oh my God, like it is just <laughs> amazing. It blew my mind that it's just incredible, this technology. And yes, we were, we are just now discussing, you know, the challenges of a country like India with, uh, you know, more large amount of population, but it's just amazing how the India stack as what they call over here, they were able to you know, execute on the Aadhaar strategy, get Aadhaar to everybody, yeah. and then get UPI also working. It's just amazing. Like, mm -hmm. I was totally amazed. And it's funny that a lot of people in the U.S. do not know about it because when I talk to my friends in U.S., and now they're going gaga over Fed now. And I'm like, <laughs> UPI since many years. It's just that outside yeah. India, not many people know about UPI. I mean, now they're probably getting to know about it in the Middle East and a lot of Southeast Asian countries. But my God, when I started using UPI late last year, I was just amazed of how incredible both the Aadhaar project and the UPI technology was. I want to make just one more quick point, uh, since you mentioned about the capital markets. And yes, I wasn't aware that uh, India, like the capital markets, they've got the like the fastest... Uh, did you say fastest or the biggest real, real time. time? Real time. Real time. So DVP, Delivery versus Payment yeah. is, yeah, it's India is the only country that actually has today uh, a, a real time security settlement system. So security wow, settlement is different from normal payments. Yes. Uh, because like you, for security settlement, you, you have to move uh, security in exchange of payments and that can be done yes. in real time in India. Yeah. That's <laughs> amazing. And that's where I want to make a quick comment because I have worked my entire life in Australia. And the Australian stock exchange is called ASX there. And you yeah. might be familiar with this. ASX had a blockchain. They wanted to do, they wanted to replace their chess system, which is their incumbent right. system, to a blockchain-based security settlement system. That's right. My God, they spent Eight years. years. Like, I was Eight early years. in my career yeah. when I heard about yeah. it. And now, like, I have a 10-year career, and now I'm doing academia venture capital. 
they recently only said that they are giving up on that project after spending like multi-millions of Australian dollars. And <laughs> over here in India, like when I came, I think sometime this year, they were talking about introducing a settlement system of T plus one. I was just amazed like at the ambition of this country when it comes to tech. So my question for you, Nathan, is that when do you think, like given so many positive things that have happened among the Indian tech stack and their ambitions, when do you actually think that we're going to start seeing real world tokenization of, let's say, real estate to start with in India? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, uh, as a proud Indian, I would say that whether it's moving money or moving spaceships, India knows how to do it cheaper, faster, yep, better sure. than anywhere else Agreed. in the world. Agree. Uh, so that's that's a that's a. Having said that, I think we begin to see pockets of work, uh, Shiv. Uh, having traveled the world in this context, um, starting from New Zealand, which is my first real estate project, eight years back, by the way, wow. tokenizing real estate. Of course, a small country, so it doesn't make the waves because four million people, you can only do so much. Australia now twenty five million people, you can only do so much. Um, but I think you see pockets of work that again. Uh, are happening for real estate or real world asset. Like for example, lion's share of my work now at what I'm doing at State Street is the efforts that we're working with the various asset managers and various investment managers is tokenization of bonds and equities and trade and, and private equities and private markets, including real estate. So now you begin to see institutions jump into this. And what that means is you're dealing with, I have crafted a moniker of three eyes when you tokenize a real world asset. What is the infrastructure? Because for you to be able to move tokenized assets, you need a blockchain-like infrastructure or DLT-like infrastructure as a transport mechanism. Yeah. So this, it's implied that the moment you tokenize an asset, you need some transport to yes. move that asset. So you're dealing with infrastructure as, a, as from the get-go. Then you need to worry about instruments. So bond is an instrument, your fiat or your money is an instrument, your real estate is an instrument. So you need to figure out as to what is the instrument and what are the rules that govern because you can't really fractionalize a car, but you can yeah. fractionalize uh, a, a a security, for example, to lower the cost of its. And you know, you can't really yeah. fractionalize a car because the ownership doesn't make sense to have half of a car and and stuff. So there's a little bit of that uh, figuring out the type of instruments, and of course, application of AI to be able to keep up with what the businesses keeps up, in conjunction with the old. Uh, so these three eyes: the infrastructure, the instruments, and the insights, collectively are the focus areas for the institutions, but also a lot of sort of startup community, the community that me and you work with and invest into, have envisioned that world and inching towards sort of building that. Just like internet, I would see that you'll find a few success stories emerge, and then I would think there'll be ex explosion sure. and exponential adoption of Understood. that because it, it would have proven. So I think we're in this cusp of that yes. phase that we just need to see some success stories and operational networks and then it's just a matter of time i think understood yeah that that makes sense now the one really burning question that i had for you in addition to the patent one which you helped me understand very well is that you have got experience in both the open permissionless blockchain world dealing with ethereum bitcoin and so forth and also the enterprise blockchain system yep. having worked for decades at IBM. How do you see both of them converging over time as the blockchain technology matures? Open permissionless and enterprise blockchain systems working together. Yeah. 
No, it's a great question. I've actually spent the last decade, Shiv. I'm glad you asked this question. So two things, right? At the outset, the public blockchains, the Bitcoin, Ether, their model, it's all about governance. They're yeah. governed by crypto sort of incentive economic system. Yes. As the name of a podcast say, suggests, proof of work, proof of stake, delegated proof of stake, and there's a whole slew of consensus mechanism which incentivizes the various actors, and then they are sort of keeping the checks and balances of the network to stay truthful, to ensure there's no collusion happening. And yes. when things go wrong, that network becomes pointless because nobody trusts in that. And so the currency of this network is trust. Uh, of course, when we apply the same technology into a permission world, which is consortium of companies trying to do business. You are trying to flatten the business process, which is now sort of housed with every single company that's part of the network. And which is the reason why things are slower today or things are inefficient today, because every company has their own business process that they yes. have taken message and process it. And blockchain aims to flatten that business process into a single layer, which is the permission network. So, there are, so while you're not leaving it open, you need to have a different incentive structure for the various lines of businesses, partners, competitors that join the network. And that incentive economic is different from mining, which is the yes. primary distinction between permission and permissionless. But the technology is the same. Yes. We are tokenizing asset here. We're Great. using native tokens and using ERC frameworks to tokenize some uh, virtual asset in this ecosystem. The technology Agreed. is the same. Yes. And the question becomes, how do we converge the two because that's the world we want to live in because we see yes. crypto as a fifth asset class. We begin to see the, the 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 various four types of asset classes in this world. But we will have to engage in a model where we can sort of have an exchange, a, a medium of exchange mechanism for these two asset classes, whether it's your sword in a game as an NFT or a stable coin, and you'll be using a stable coin to pay for it for the real world asset, which may be tokenized, for example. Yeah. And to achieve that model, you need to focus on two things. One is interoperability. Yes. Suddenly now the two worlds have to talk to each other technically as well as uh, the ability for us to value assets. But more importantly, I think that today that there are centralized entities like centralized exchanges that provide that conversion for you to be able to you know, convert something to stablecoin, move stablecoin to banking and banking then lets you yep. pay for your house, for example. That's where we are today. But I certainly see convergence because at the end of the day, we are dealing with things of value. Yes. So whether it's your you know, gold or diamond, which in the physical world you carry with you and you go to some shop and convert them into cash and cash becomes the interoperability technology instrument yeah. that lets you convert gold to cash and cash into a car or a house. Uh, I expect that as we tokenize your previous conversation of your real world assets, I'll see something similar, except sure. it'll have a digital model, you know, modality. That makes totally. sense. Yeah, totally. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Look, uh, uh, I'm already loving uh, this discussion because uh, you have a knack. This is the first time I'm discussing anything with you, Nitin, but like you've got a knack of really explaining technical, complex stuff in a very easy and concise manner, most importantly. So I'm loving this and thanks for the education. Thank you, Shiv, for that. Yeah, it's just that you live this all day long. If you ask me something else, I may not have, have a clue, but. But you know what you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. So coming to <clears throat> blockchain projects, what are some of the blockchain projects out there that you are most excited about? And are there any underhyped applications uh, that could be game changers in the future? So when you say blockchain, you mean, I'm assuming you mean the crypto and digital asset blockchain uh, yeah, in general, it, right? It could be uh, an enterprise blockchain project. Uh, yeah. 
that you would be aware of or a crypto open permissionless yeah. project as well. Yeah. So uh, let's start with the traditional world, right? Because I see traditional world has a lot of opportunities in improving itself. And I think if you look at, like, in UPI context, UPI opened a corridor with Singapore. Yes. Uh, Real-time payment moving between Singapore and India, which I think is phenomenal in terms Amazing. of trade finance and trade yeah. between the two, right? Similarly, uh, there's Project Guardian, which is something which is led by Singapore, Project Intheon, which is led by Hong Kong Energy Authority. And the idea behind these are utilization of public networks. So you're still performing what you would perform in traditional finance, but using public blockchain utility as a public blockchain network as a utility, just like you would use internet to send information. Yes. So we have intranets or we have VPNs that provide startling, but we're able to do business you know, across the globe using internet as utility. Imagine the yes. same role that Project Guardian is exploring and Project Intheon and Project Lion, for example, in, in, in Hong Kong, trying to figure out the payment vehicles between various countries, Southeast Asia, trying to speed up the movement of payments that, that are happening. Project Arbor, for example, in UAE and Saudi Arabia, which is trying to bypass the US clearing system and to be able to facilitate trade between those two countries. Exciting, right? Because you're trying to address the foundational issue of medium of exchange. And the once, the moment you solve that, then you naturally speed up the commerce, the speed of commerce, because no longer you have to worry about de-risking and other elements because the ability for you to move money in real time for international trade becomes a lot more simpler, which today yes. can last from two to six to eight to 10 weeks. A huge problem yeah. there. Exactly. And that leads to liquidity problems, lending, borrowing that happens, which is not very good for the, for the economy. Yeah. The in the public uh, realm, I like things like graph, or I like singularity, or or I look into ocean protocol, looking into of course Bitcoin and Ether are staples that you have to naturally love these projects because they have changed the face of the the last fourteen years of letting us reimagine everything from using yes. smart contracts for between bilateral or peer to peer transaction that you're sitting Shiv in India and I'm sitting here and we can still exchange value. As if if you were sitting in front of me and I would give you a dollar, yeah. that's the ultimate transaction. There's no mid-office, back office to process that True. dollar transaction that I would hand it off to you. Can I not achieve the same level of transactionality when I'm sitting with you in India to just send you a dollar and yeah. that would be it? And that's only possible tokenized fiat. So I begin to look into some of these projects as truly um, sort of you know revolutionary in terms of at least uh, stroking our imagination in what the world could be, uh, yeah. which is inching towards 9 billion people. And I don't think our existing financial systems can handle the gravity, the velocity, and the veracity of transactions that is yet to come, given the millennials only want to do things digitally. Yeah, right. so yeah, look, well that's my take on that. And look, thanks a lot. I, I wasn't aware of uh, those project guardians and the other projects that are happening. But that's amazing that the amount of work that is being done in order to facilitate increased international payments because uh, yeah now being in India and then doing some international payments from Australia to India for investment Jesus it takes ages and I don't only mean like just the speed of the banking payments but also like the other regulatory stuff that goes on in making an investment in India being a foreign citizen even though being an OCI just uh, for the yeah. first time it takes ages I mean that's the experience that I had now, I, I there are two things that I wanted to ask you while you were answering the previous two questions. One is that you laughed a lot when I spoke about ASX debacle with the, yeah. their blockchain settlement system. 
Now, I know some stories about it because I was in Sydney and I have friends there. What do you know about, or is there something that you want to share that really made you laugh when I no, started speaking I about it? Yeah, I think I was involved early on as an IBMer, and okay. IBM actually had a minority's stake in something called Digital Asset Holding, which yes. is a company that was working with ASX. And yeah. we were involved with, and the reason why I'm laughing is because when we, what was sold to ASX, at the time, I didn't think that was possible. Okay. But it's one of those things where you're a technologist and you want to understand the momentum and you want the, the coalition of the willing to yeah. apply your craft. Yeah. And even though we're like your kids, coming from IBM, because the existing transaction system is something IBM built, like all the mainframes and COBOL and the entire core banking system is still reliant upon, yes. upon the old transaction system. And I used to work with WebSphere, which was the transaction platform for e-commerce. So I know a thing or two on transactions. And I was looking at this as it was sold to, um, is it Chess? Chess is the platform they yes, were looking at, which is very profitable. Yeah. Like it was cash draw for ASX. And I yeah. was just question, thinking about this to say, it's working fine. And you're not actually plagued with performance because yeah. it's Australia is a small country. You're not exactly yeah. at the gravity of China, India, or even the US in terms of transaction volumes. So it's one of the most profitable platforms in the world. Um, yeah. And my question was, what is the motivation here? Uh, are you looking for speed and why? You're not dealing with performance issues. So I just failed to understand the battery. And they spent eight years. Yeah. And I would think between 60 to 100 million, I don't have the numbers in front of me. And we would go back and forth, back and forth. They would change the change, pivot. We would add new technologies. And, and I was just uh, amazed at which we went, kept going at it only to realize that they shut it down after eight years, which yeah. was like, ah, that's just too sad because again, timing is everything. I think we have all the tech now, yeah, which is whether it's privacy preservation or performance of blockchain ecosystem, which you never had 10 years back. Time. Yeah. So yeah. it's just timing. And when the, when things were just right, they just quit. And I yeah. wish if they started now, they had a higher chance of success now than yeah. 10 years back. That's sure. my. That's the reason Look, why I was. Smiling. Thanks for enlightening me. That's that's good to know that uh, you were involved during the start, and those were your thoughts. And look, uh, I remember at 2015, 2016, when I used to get updates from my friends at ASX, like what's happening to that blockchain. Once I really deep dove into the blockchain world, and they're like, "We're still figuring out." After three years, <laughs> I'm like, "What do you mean you're still yeah. figuring out? You spent three years with so many project <laughs> managers and so forth." Yeah, cool. Now, the other question that I really wanted to ask you was that uh, there is an aha moment whenever somebody, you know, deep dives and get into the rabbit hole of blockchain and can never come back out of it. They have that aha moment. What yeah. was your, that aha moment? Was it on Ethereum blockchain or was it on the Bitcoin blockchain? No, no, it has been as Bitcoin. When I was, when I started the journey, we only had Bitcoin. Life was oh, yes. so much more easy back in the day and Ethereum was just emerging, but my was just Bitcoin. So uh, it's interesting because again, thanks to IBM, I was leading as CTO of mobile payments. So we were tasked to say, what can IBM do to, this is early days, this is pre-Apple Pay, pre-Samsung Pay and the entire Android payment systems. Payments were very card driven and there yes. were a lot of challenges and there were conversation in terms of using your mobile devices for payments or your ring and what you see now, your Apple Pay and everything else. So I literally took some time to travel to 65 of different, our largest clients who wow. are in payment processing space. Sure. Of course, Visa, MasterCard, and 
the first data and, and some of the other players were who were working the back thesis, uh, ACH and the, the whole nine yards. And in every conversation, Bitcoin kept popping up. Like, hey, Bitcoin could be an answer. And I was like, what the hell is this thing? I had no idea where it was. So I came back after my travels, locked myself for three months in a room. Literally, I didn't go and do anything else. I just saw YouTube after YouTube, read the white paper, and then it actually clicked. It clicked after three months. Then I went and I couldn't mine because mining was expensive, the energy cost and everything else. I, I, I at least knew that much. So I said, let me, believe it or not, my first bunch of Bitcoins that I bought was with a check. Irony of all ironies. I bought my Bitcoin with a check. Yeah. I wrote a check. I mailed the check. And a week and a half later, the check cleared. I saw Bitcoin on my wallet. Back in the day, it was Zappo, which is later acquired by Coinbase. Got it. And it is, people wow. won't tell you how much Bitcoin they have, but my first Bitcoin was 100, 100, 110 bucks or whatever. You know, it was, it was great. Uh, wow. And I did experiments. I began to fractionalize it. I would lose the keys for those fractions. I would like create multiple wallets. And all this experiment to learn what the hell was happening. Uh, and yes, I also have those fame stories when I saw swap my laptop back in the day. We didn't have cloud uh, yeah. uh, wallets, so there are times when I did lose a bunch of them when I swapped my laptop for the new oh, laptop because corporate policy. And yeah. somewhere in landfill, uh, I have a bunch of Bitcoin private keys in, in landfill. But there are bigger fools than I am. I mean, I've known people <laughs> who have lost three hundred, four hundred million dollars worth, so I don't feel as as bad. Uh, but my journey was Bitcoin and. and when I begin to understand as a transaction system, not so much as Bitcoin itself, sure. Um, and read the white paper, I think it clicked to me. And my my vision, which is what we coined the term, which is what I begin to use later on, is what information, what internet has done for information, which is egalitarian access to information. Yes. Blockchain will do that for well things of value. Yeah. And that is the moniker and thesis we went with to say it opened up like information today, kids, any parts of the world have access to the same information anywhere in the world, which is not the case when I was growing up. Yeah. Because now the West had access to a lot of libraries, which growing up in India, we had central library, which took a long time to get there. Uh, but uh, over time, information became accessible and you suddenly saw a massive growth and the same talent pool available anywhere in the world. Yes. And now you have level playing field in terms of access to technology, growth in economies, and some amazing advancements that we have seen. Yeah. If we simply accelerate that with things of value, suddenly now a farmer, school teacher have the same access to financial markets that me and you do. They have the ability to grow their money, participate in this financial system that they understand and they can trust. Yes. Um, and not be uh, succumb to any scam. Though I think we have a long way to go, but that's yes. my sort of take on on my entry point. Look, thanks for sharing. Wow, you are like certified crypto OG, sir. Like back in the day. All that. That's incredible. I love hearing these stories because these is this like that era was just like so OG era. Uh, so love hearing this, these stories. Thanks for sharing. I'm curious to get your take because Bitcoin is uh, like Australia compared to other nations is very progressive when it comes to the application of crypto. Like you can use crypto as payments can go to a gas station and use crypto to pay for gas as well using crypto.com cards. So Australia is very progressive when it comes to how one can use crypto in addition to as a wealth management product. Since coming to India, and especially from what I heard, the budget of last year was the kicker. It seems to me that it's well established that no matter what happens to crypto in India, 
one thing is certain that crypto is not going to be used as a method for payment. Like that's not going to be allowed by the government of India. Like that's the consensus that I'm getting, having stayed over here, that even if crypto gets legitimized and they reduce the tax, they're not going to allow Correct. crypto to be as a method for payments. Correct. What is your take to it, considering that we're talking about that blockchain yeah. is going to be used? Do you think that it's okay if crypto is not being used like Bitcoin and Ethereum? At least they're going to have central bank digital currency with some use of blockchain. What is your take towards it? Yeah, so there's a reason for that. And I, again, this is where I draw from all of my work with central bank uh, agencies around the world and payment systems around the world. So as you know, uh, India has a massive issue with terrorism, like many countries who are succeeding and trying to have a democratic system per se. And demoralization, which had transpired a few years back, was aimed to thwart the illegal use of money and all these cash they were hoarding in large values. So by reducing the value, you had to carry a lot more money. And natural gravity was you start using diamonds and gold as one way to move store of value because you can't really have bags and bags of 100 rupee notes, for example. Yes. To move a million dollars, you need a lot of bags. Uh, so it became hard to launder money, per se. The reason why I think any country will not allow for the sovereign nation would not allow they allow crypto as an alternative asset class, but for you to allow it as a payment system which you have no control, the sovereign has no control over, it's very hard to implement counterterrorism financing laws. It's very hard to implement the ability for you to actually pause payments because of some nefarious activities. True. So payment systems are critical infrastructure in most countries because they not only fuel economies, but they provide visibility for the governments to change policies and act in real time but also understand the utilization of money if it's used for nefarious purposes or terrorism. And I think it's the duty of any uh, centralized government and sovereign nation to protect its masses from bad things from happening. Of course, at times, that same power is misused yes. against their own citizens, as we've seen in Canada and as we've seen yeah. in various parts of the world, that you freeze assets. And yeah. that oftentimes is the downside of the whole equation. So I doubt if any country is going to, and that's why my previous convergence, that for you to pay for things, I mean, at the end of the day, people still pay for things using non-cash alternatives, but you have to be in person. And the risk that I gave example is, if I had to pay you Bitcoin and I'd use it as a payment instrument, can I use that and without sort of completely bypassing the visibility from any sovereign actor into that transaction? Uh, that is the that is the real fight. I don't think anybody sure. is actually against crypto. The real fight Sorry. is we need visibility into this, and if you don't get visibility or we have no control, which they don't need your own control, you can't control Bitcoin transactions. No one can control yeah. those transactions yeah. unless you turn the internet off, which again is untenable yeah. uh, for most parts of the world. I think that's the real struggle sure. that the that the establishment is trying to sure. trying to understand and thwart. Yeah, no, totally. That that uh, totally makes sense, and that's a fair uh, that's a fair argument for the regulators over here yeah. to do it because the stakes are high for a country like India. Since you brought up now for the first time in our discussion the dark side of crypto in a way, and uh, last year was a terrible year for crypto. Like uh, I haven't been in crypto as long as you. But I recall that uh, when Mt. Gox hack happened, 
I wasn't a crypto participant, but I was aware of it and the amount of pain that people suffered from the Mt. Gox hack. Was there, in your 10-year participation in the crypto ecosystem, there must have been some emotionally frustrating moments for you that yeah. there are so many bad actors within this ecosystem and they bring the entire industry down with it. So, like, what were some of the most extremely frustrating moments for you during your last 10 years when you have observed these crypto participants uh, doing some really shit things? And, like, what made you still have hope uh, towards this technology then? Yeah, look, uh, it's, I won't say dark side because lion's share of money laundering still happens in U.S. dollars. Yeah, uh, and uh, so I, I won't just label crypto, except crypto also has, doesn't have yeah. the market depth that US dollar does. So crypto is like close to 1.5 trillion or whatever, and it's peak, it was 3 trillion. Yeah. Uh, the US dollar in the entire globe is like enormously high. So there's enough market depth to use that for nefarious purposes. Uh, so that's largely, you know, there's comparatively, crypto is like a fraction of whatever happens in a single day. Uh, what's frustrating to me was, we're all associated with the industry and we come with right intention, we come with acumen. I spend, just like you, we spend hours in understanding the space, understanding technology, understanding application of technology to improvise a system that is aging and it's decaying over time, like any system does. I mean, the system was great 30 years back, but you know, with times we have to change the way our expectation change and that that's our, this thing. So when I've labeled this as contagion of incompetence, in 2021, 2022, which is towards the tail end of November when FTX blew up and next thing you know, we had 3AC, we had Luna. It looks like the entire crypto ecosystem was on fire. Yes. But there are also many of us who are tightening the belt, heads down, not looking for get rich quick, figuring yeah. out as to what this, looking into more intellectual side of the house, working yeah. with MIT and and the the finest financial, so the finest educational mm -hmm. institution around the world, including the likes of IIT and around the world in figuring out how do we look into privacy preservation and to do these things. And this thing blows up. Well, now all our energy is expending in defending the industry sure. that actually constructively building what we need to build sure. to prevent the contagion of incompetence from happening per se. Uh, and that throws us back. And the worst thing yeah. was that Sam Bankman fried who was sort of the, the, the chief architect of the FTX stuff. Um, the savior as Sequoia titled him. Yeah, and he was also like, you know, whatever his philosophies in life were, he actually had established access with lawmakers. He had established access with changing and altering what me and you will take forever because we are still in the common people's swim lane uh, and don't have access to the Congress and, and the participants of the Congress. I, who mean, have the I am sure the you are being modest over there, but sure. <laughs> no, no, that's just true. So what is frustrating for me that he... We had an opportunity to change things. Yes. And I, he blew it totally. in a way which was just silly and stupid. I'm like, how can you be that stupid? Yeah. You, if you're, even if you're committing fraud, yeah. do it in such a way that you people will admire you. With this was just silly and stupid. But we lost the opportunity we had in a constructive dialogue with the regulators and lawmakers alike. That to me was the most frustrating part. It's not fine. We lost because traditional finance had Bernie Madoffs of the world who did something yeah, similar. True. And the numbers, the zeros went up in this case, but there'll be a bigger fraud in five years from now and people forget yeah. this. And 
but it's the opportunity cost of this which has set us back as an industry like at least five right. years so totally agree with you uh, i wrote as well when that happened and i was i was also gutted like many people of what happened last year especially with ftx um and i i did a lot of youtube videos at that time and a lot of linkedin posts just taking out my frustration but yeah i agree last year was really tough for the industry but i'm glad that uh we are still continuing the march on as an industry. We're still continuing on the march. Uh, last year, it felt like we're going to go back to the medieval ages of mountain Gox, but, uh, you know, we, we are still marched on. So Nitin, now I'm really curious to know about your journey more from a human element. And this is a question that I really ask a lot of people who were born in India, but then, you know, moved overseas as an Indian Australian, like. I feel I can resonate with the journey of yourself as well, being an Indian American. During the start, did you ever feel emotionally displaced? Like you didn't fully belong in either of the culture? I won't say displaced. I was trying yeah. very hard to fit in because, you know, when I was growing up and maybe a different era, um, because we were enamored with, first of all, U.S. had all the cool tech so yeah. we all want to hang out with the cool kids and like, okay, you know, you have access to all these things and you're able to, you know, go and get a different experience. So my one thing was you're traveling and travel always opens your mind yes. and you come into university and you're figuring out all the systems for new language is not an issue. Culture was not an issue because we spoke English and we were abreast with thanks to media and television, and everything else. But it took me a while to understand the economic system. How do people settle in? How do people think, you know, as an American and I've been now lived here 30, 30 plus years but, and when people try to categorize you as a brown man, as a diversity candidate, I'm like, diversity comes from your thought process. I begin to think like Americans now. We're going to live here such a long time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I left India like when I was 19, 20 timeframe. And I wasn't displaced. I was curious. I was trying very hard to fit in, both yeah. in terms of trying to adopt and adapt. And there's a little bit of the loss of, of I would say, culture. Because India, uh, as, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm a very proud Indian yeah. I wear it on my sleeve um, yeah. all the time and and uh, even more so now, I'm proud of the culture, the heritage that our yes. country has to offer Great. to the world. Yes. Um, and so, but at the time, it was just trying to adjust because you're in a foreign country and you want to be one of them because you aspire to come here and you're here, access yeah. to education, access to opportunities. And I will tell you this, America gave me all that, that at the time, India could not, whether it's economic condition, whether it's social mores or closed systems that you went to school for one thing and you could only do one thing. Yes. I couldn't make the career changes in my life that I could do thanks to the ecosystem and cultures in the US. But that has, of course, changed. India sure. is now, at, I think, at par, if not ahead, in those values and those promotions and of, sure. of, of equities, I would say, in our careers and lives that back in the day was only available in some Western countries. Um, so that was level playing field from that perspective. So I was displaced. I was just trying to learn and and continue to learn and I leveraged the time here to travel because it was yes. easier for us to get visas from the United States than it was get from India and it was simpler because you simply mail your passport and you get your visa yes. back. Uh, it was that simple. And so I took that opportunity to be able to travel Europe, travel Asia, travel this yes. until I became a citizen but just as we were discussing earlier, uh, you back your bags and leave which <laughs> is such a beautiful thing True. Uh, to get up and leave at a moment's notice uh, yeah. and that freedom is, is to me very precious. To do Agreed. that, Agreed. so yeah. Look, uh, I totally like resonate because it was the same experience for me. 
uh, when going to Australia, like I wanted to really immerse myself, but I couldn't really understand that culture. And over time, you understand that culture and you become immersed uh, towards it. But uh, I loved your point about traveling really broadens your mind because what I understood about being an Indian Australian actually changed a lot when I went to NYU and I was part of the yeah. American culture. And I was like, wow, because over there, I was part of the Indian American community, yeah. which is and so Australian. strong, yeah. right? Yeah. And I was part of the Australian American community, which to be honest, wasn't that strong in the US or in New York City. And so my mind just blown away that uh, when somebody moves to a different country from their country of birth, even if they are Australian, like they have challenges, like what I experienced for Australian Americans. And uh, so it really broadened my mind about this entire third cultural identity. And I agree with you, like over time you get immersed and you get comfortable. Now, here's something that I want to ask you, because now last year coming back to India after spending my entire <laughs> adult life overseas, I had really like it was very challenging for me to fit in back in India. And I'm yeah. glad the friends that I've made over time over here and the colleagues that I've made. But I would be lying if I say that I didn't experience a reverse culture shock now that I've been in India since last year. So the question that I have for you is that you visit India often. Do you, having lived in America and having traveled so many countries, you, I would imagine, resonate yourself as a global citizen, being proud yeah. of your Indian ethnic roots, same as me, but yeah. as a global citizen. When you come back to India, do you experience at times the reverse culture shock? Or have you experienced reverse culture shock when you came uh, to India? I, I have, yeah, I have only because, uh, for example, Hindi, right? I yeah. speak a Hindi, which I think now is of a different era altogether. Yeah. So when I come to India and I start to speak that Hindi, people are like, who's this guy? Like, what kind of Hindi is that? Because, you know, cultures change, people change. Yeah. Demographic changes the way they communicate. Sure. Yeah. And we try to speak this, what is called Shud Hindi, like pure Hindi, which is how yeah. what I grew up with. And I speak Karnataka because I grew up in Bangalore. Um, and there's a little bit of that whole thing. And there are a lot of these social mores that have changed. So yeah. I look like Indian. I am Indian. I speak the language. But I, I just don't know the social culture mores anymore because simply I was not, I've not been there. Um, yeah. So the only thing that I think is uh, the profanity has not changed. Uh, that's the only thing I see. This is the the gullies, you know, when you actually are fighting with the auto guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, that's the only moment I feel that everything comes back, because that is not changed. the The way you right. are yelling and shouting middle of the street, and yeah. that to me, I find it only amusing. But I feel like okay, now I belong here because I can understand this and I can I can I can yeah. I can I can do these things. Uh, yeah. But yes, I do feel that you're alien in your own country, and as much as I want to embrace it. Um, that when I go to India sometimes and I'm doing this workshop, people will tell me this is how it's, you know, we Indians do this. And I'll think like, oh yeah, dude, I'm one of you. You know, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like I'll do the whiteboarding and I'll do all oh, these oh. things and then we'll take a break and then say, okay, you know, it's, they say, no, no, in India we do it this way. And I'm like, I'm one yeah. of you, man. Don't tell me, you know, like, yeah. what is the, or, the thing? And, and it's it's interesting I, that way, but uh, it's okay. And sometimes it's I, I'll, t I'll go to a, a family gathering and of course, people are speaking their local language. 
And then my family members will try to translate it for me. And I'm like, I understand it. You don't have to translate it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And they'll translate the same thing they said in Hindi yeah. to me, which I find just interesting. To say, hey, I yeah. understand. Why, I don't know why you're yeah. translating it. Like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> yeah, look. But it's all first... good. It's all yeah. good. Yeah, of yeah. course. But yeah, I totally, maybe because I'm new, uh, but and I'm, you know, trying to uh, adjust and all that. But yeah, that first point that you raised, oh my God, it has happened so many times. Like, I may, I may be exaggerating so many times, but it has happened often to me that, you know, people highlighting that uh, this is now how it is done in India. You're not an Indian. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. Obi. Can't believe yeah, this guy say this thing. Uh, how did you reconcile with that over time? So, you know, it's interesting because um, I'll tell you this. The, my biggest strength is my understanding of Indian financial system. Only because I'm blockchain, I have to, I used to come to India quite a bit, work with RBI. And so yeah. all these financial inclusion programs like Pradhan Mantri, Jandan, Yojana, and everything else, yeah. you understand those things. So when I went to Bangalore, uh, we had, uh, this is where I'm, I'm from, and we had some people who are having a hard time getting bank accounts. And I'm like, you know, we have this program, we should go. No one had heard of it. So I took them all, like a group of people, to the bank. I said, you know, they opened an account. Like, uh, they gave me all this stuff. And I said, you know, Pradhan Mantri, you know, Danjan yeah. Yojana is like, he's there. You should be able to do these things. And they were all surprised. Like, yeah, yeah, we have that. And we opened. I opened like 15 accounts that nice. day. And I feel like, how do you know these things? You're like, you're not even from here. I'm like, yeah, well, I read. <laughs> and I'm working with financial system. So you have all these programs that you know. So then I go to bank and people ask me to do things. I'm like, your system should not ask me for this information because they're involved in crafting those systems behind the scenes or at least yeah. understanding how the systems work, yes. whether it's foreign exchange or whether it's uh, economic inclusion programs tied to your Aadhaar card, even programs that are not required you have Aadhaar cards, for example. Yeah, uh, That has given me advantage. But reconciliation, I'll tell you, I did make a trip once to only answer this question. I went to Chile and I walked for, you know, I would say, 11 days, oh, wow. hiked, quiet. No, no, you know, Those are magical moments. I try to do it once a year. And I begin to reconcile to say, hey, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. You have to adjust to it. Yeah, true. And defining who my identity and say, you know, I, I begin to say I'm an American citizen with Indian heritage. Uh, not necessarily Indian American because that often have a different connotation. And, sure. and I use the word heritage to signify my real identity. And I provide citizenship to the passport that I hold. And that's how I came up with that whole thing. But my reconciliation was, hey, I have to adapt. The world doesn't owe me anything. You know, I have to simply go out there and accept the way things are and and do my best to fit in, whether it's here or whether yeah. it's any other country. Um, and I just do that. I, I'm not bitter or anything else. It's just yeah. the way life works. So just don't yeah. care. I, I think you do yeah. your do, do your part and and do your part. And um, you know, that's the way I approached it. Yeah. Look, uh, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And I think, uh, I mean, it's very profound what you said. So I'm still digesting. Uh, you know, how you reconcile with that. But I think, uh, yeah, it's it makes sense. And uh, something that I need to instill with myself as well, that the world yeah. doesn't owe me anything. I need to adapt. Uh, I think you said it very profoundly. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you. Now, Nitin, the other commonality between us, uh, we both are blockchain educators. And uh, <laughs> I know that when I taught uh, the MBA students, and some of them, are mutual students of ours. I asked them in first class, like, uh, where did you learn blockchain or crypto yeah. about it? 
uh, before you join Masters Union because Masters Union has got an incredible curriculum. You teach there. Oh, it's there amazing. Not... Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked them that, you know, were there any challenges of learning crypto and blockchain? And uh, they all unanimously said that it's just very hard to find a structured learning path for crypto, DeFi, or blockchain technology, despite industry's best efforts. So I'm curious to get your take, since you've been in the industry for a while, what resources or perspectives would you recommend students who are entering university education to look at when it comes to getting knowledge about crypto and blockchain? No, I think that's a, that's plagued me for the longest time, Shiv, uh, where I've actually designed, tried to design courses three times. Yeah. I've tried that for a university in Dubai, I think it was University of Sharjah, and uh, online school here, and for EC Council, there was a bunch of these things that I've tried to craft a course. I even wrote a few books on this topic, my laser with blockchain for business, to do this for CIOs to say, hey, or CEOs to just have enough information so they can be productive in meetings. Yeah. Um, and by the time we finished with syllabus and crafting content, it became obsolete. Absolutely. Uh, only because the industry is moving at such a rapid pace that the only thing they haven't changed is the fundamentals. Yes. So I came with the thinking that people should know fundamentals first. So if you don't know the basic tenets of block and the linkages between the nuns and how it's processed, the basic like soup to basic, nuts yeah. in blockchain world. Yeah. And then you begin to apply the advanced learning on top of that. Because if you're trying to go into zero knowledge proofs, which is like a much more advanced concept or VDF, which is very wide. These are like very esoteric constructs. And you don't get the basics, then you'll be completely lost and that actually leads to disenchantment with the subject itself. And so my effort, just like yours with Masters Union, is to instill that foundational elements. Like what are we solving for? Is this technology for technology's sake or does it actually really solve an issue and how does it solve an issue from technology point of view, the challenges with existing cloud infrastructure or technology infrastructures, and then you bring in the layers of legal and everything else. I don't even discuss DeFi till like day two or day three in the courses that I that I teach. And I believe that once the student get it, which is what I've learned that uh, in the classes, that it's hard sometimes because after day one, I get feedback from let's say master's union, like, hey, you need to simplify this whole thing. And I, like I did, you know, I understand this. Uh, but day two, day three, you realize that you see the class, the cohort really blossom yes. and they start coming up with these amazing ideas. And so my assignment to the class has been always, and I learned from it, so I'm really doing it for myself, is have a group of four people and and pitch an idea that actually encapsulates all the fundamentals we've learned in a business idea with business models, like you're pitching to a VC. That's the homework yeah. that we give. And so um, I would say that fundamentals and you have to, may have to go back to hitting, like the, for the students, hitting the textbook, understand the, you just read the Bitcoin paper, understand it. And that is the foundation. And that eventually no longer anybody has time to read the whole textbooks like we used to back in the day. Yeah. But I actually, um, and so the one thing I tell, which is the last thing I'll say and pause, is the way, once you understand the industry, I always say to my students and to my mentees, that there's some industry that we all gravitate towards. So for me, that's financial services. I love it. I understand it. I always started to learn more, read more. Everybody has, somebody has healthcare, somebody has retail, somebody has whatever it is that we naturally gravitate towards. My ask has been, you take the industry, apply what you know, and see if there's a match 
because then you're able to actually have application of that and everything will fall in place. And then you'll actually find problems and go solve those problems and you'll go learn about the technologies or projects that are yep. trying to solve those specific. And one thing will lead to another and, you know, given a year or two, you'll find yourself in this interesting area where you have crafted a certain niche that is only yep. yours. Sure. Yeah. So, um, look, I consider myself an accidental educator because I didn't come to India to teach. Uh, I there came no to accidents. India. Sure. Sorry? There are no accidents. It's, there are no accidents. Your destiny. <laughs> so accept it. <laughs> sure. All right. Uh, so yeah, I came to India uh, for personal reason, then invested in an ed tech company. And through that, I got connected to the university industry. So I teach at Masters Union. But there is another business school that I teach in Hyderabad, uh, which is more of the introduction to blockchain and fundamental side to their MBA students. And over time, I've just become very passionate about education as a concept, as, as an industry, as a technology, uh, all that. Doing a deep dive towards blockchain education. I have witnessed over time that, let's say, Coinbase came up with Learn to Earn. And there was this startup that raised $20 million, and I do not know what they're doing with it, called Rabbit Hole, that uh, <laughs> we're supposed to do, again, a Learn to Earn where they're gonna, you know, they're gonna have a structured process of actually people connecting their wallets, doing some stuff like swapping and all that, and earning some money. But I haven't seen any updates from that, and that startup is called Rabbit Hole. Do you think there is a future for like learning by doing using these learn to earn DeFi protocols? Like, do you see a future of them? So I, I have always believed this that you have to tap into an incentive economic system. Yeah. If I'm learning to simply earn tokens, well, either the learning is not effective or the tokens are not effective, it's not valued. If I'm learning to educate myself and the process I get paid, that's a whole different question. And generally that used to happen when corporates used to pay for your education and you learned, yes. but you got paid on the side. Uh, the And I actually spend a lot of time in designing tokenomic system that makes sense. Just by introducing a token that you can earn you also want an ecosystem that can accept those tokens. You want an ecosystem. And if you can learn and the platform that's enabling the education accepts this token back, then they might as well give you some credits. And the token is not exactly universal if it's sent to the platform and it's not exactly a fungible asset. Right. Fungible implying it's fungible for any other asset class like your rupee or dollars are yes. can yeah. buy anything with it. And that's the biggest fault of the system that they, there's either a lopsided economic system that has a mismatch between earn and spend, hence yeah. inflation, deflation, uh, not considered, or looking to ubiquity of the token to say, uh, because it's not possible for everybody to have like hundreds and thousands of tokens. You have to pick yeah. just like, you know, what we do. And so I begin to now, for at least my investment thesis, focus a lot on tokenomic systems and looking into if that's immutable and if have somebody has the ability to change the tokenomic system, then that's a problem. Because sure. imagine you're flying for 15 years and you have all these miles. Suddenly they change the equation of miles to your redemption process. You'll be yeah. angry. And that actually has a negative connotation and impact on your intended objectives. Because now you're alienating the most loyal people or people who have earned over time. And some of these things to me are are still in open question. And so I, I try not to, I still go to conventional economic models like work to earn. Of course, I'm just kidding. You work and you earn money and that's work to earn model. Um, and um, but most token models over time have failed for that reason. I yes, think. true, true. Well said. I'm with you. So, um, like, we still need to figure out how to 
educate people on blockchain. We haven't really found that model till yet. We're going to see an evolution of that. I mean, Coinbase did that, right? If you look at Coinbase, yeah, Coinbase allows you to take small tutorials. Yes. And so it's better than airdrop. So at least you're learning yeah. about a token and you get like one or two or $3 worth sure. of tokens in your wallet. Yeah. And if you do it long enough, you'll make $100, $200. It's not going to make you rich. But you yeah. do it because it has a dual purpose. One, if I'm learning about a shift token, that's a unit token, I understand it and I have three tokens to start. So it's at least getting you kick-started to find the utility of the token, um, which is an important part. So I yes. think they have done a pretty good job because that's a yes, business. Yes, I agree. So I can sure. see Coinbase doing it and say, hey, I'll pay three bucks for mm. you to spend some time on the platform and that gives me another coin to list and yes. more transaction and more fees. So they have an incentive to pay me three bucks even though I may never use the three bucks to benefit uh, yeah, Coinbase it. directly, but they're trying to increase their volume and that's their incentive, right? So that's an example that could of be a way. Yeah, true. Yeah. Now, my last question for you, Nathan, coming over here, I get asked a lot of questions from students and I believe you get asked that question as well, that uh, should we continue to live in India or should we move overseas, whether it's to get a job or to start a venture or for higher studies? My question to you is more about high school students in India who ask this question that should we do our undergrad in India or should we move overseas? What would be your yeah. advice to them? Somebody so who's there was complete. an era, there was an era when higher education was better in the West. Um, I would say I'm very bullish in India, and if I had a choice all over again, uh, and I've contemplated moving back to India, except that now we have kids and they are, you you are stuck in this what I would say chakra view of life, which is the cycle of life yeah. in general. Uh, but India has the best education to offer, and India has the right economic model. And at the above all, which is what I learned from traveling a lot to Israel, India's homeland, right? And so, your contribution as an individual, both in terms of intellectual capacity, contributing as a, as a as a member of society, taking your acumen and knowledge, applying that to the Indian ecosystem, and travel for learning, travel for business, and propagate that intellectual capital that you earned from the Indian ecosystem and benefit your country from that perspective. And yes, of course, stay in that country because it's always a great experience to learn cultures and language and music and everything else. Uh, but I would say, and I would caution this, and this is Nitin's personal opinion, that the seduction the West had back in the day, I don't think it's no longer valid or sure. worth it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think we have enough in India to to benefit from an amazing culture, amazing heritage, amazing food that the world craves for. And we throw all that for for something that is just illusionary for us to go and, towards. And so I've come to this balanced perspective to say, global citizen, no labels, just go and do what you need to do, but you have to remain true to your roots. Because at the end of the day, uh, for high school students, you, we will always be Indians no matter where you live. So you might as well embrace yeah. the the idea from the you know from the get go. Yeah. So that'd be my, my yeah. message. Not to mention the Amazing. cost and culture and and yeah, and the perils of the West in terms of healthcare, in terms of all these. So West has challenges too. There's no yes. Uh, yeah, it's, of course. It's what you make of it. It's what absolutely. you make of it, right? So. Absolutely. Look, my apologies in advance if I'm being intrusive, but uh, uh, since you brought up kids into the equation, I'm interested to know what do your kids think about going to India to do something? 
So my, I have one son and he's been to India every, you know, like typical thing you would take him to when during summer holidays and before COVID, he would go every year after COVID, we went back and now he's in college. So when you're in college, you have your own life and you have your own vision. Yes. Um, and fortunately for me, because we've been traveling the world, he is a little bit more aware than normal South American kids in general. But I would say that his perspective is he doesn't see India as I do, because obviously I was born there. I grew up there. He yeah. sees India as something that his roots are from, uh, but his his tethering to India is not the same as it's for me. Understood. Uh, he knows that we come from. He of course has the 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 citizenship of the country and everything else. Yeah. But I would say that uh, for him, it's somewhere in Asia. He's figuring that out now, sure. and that's his journey to figure it out. Sure. But I'm sure as yeah. we get older. As I'm getting yeah. older, we all go back to our roots. Like I'm now yeah. inclined towards coming back to India. Right. Uh, that's his journey. For, that's his life to figure yeah. out. So that's that's no, why I take on that as well. Yeah. No, I totally feel you. I mean, I told you the reason why I came to India. But yeah, the incident that happened really brought a different outlook to me, which then told me that I should come back to my roots for a while. So I, I, I get you when you say that over time, you know, you get that feeling that go back to your yeah. roots. Uh, and I got a good education from you now on how to reconcile when I meet some Indian colleagues of mine who tell me that I'm not Indian on how to reconcile with that problem. <laughs> yeah. cool. No, I actually envy you now because you actually made the leap and you're there. And regardless of how difficult it is, um, I don't think it's cakewalk in Australia either because I'm sure you're stuck yeah. just like all of us. People ask you, where are you really from? Yeah. That's the next question. You're like, hey, I'm an Australian. No, no, where are you really from? And then you're just like, oh, then you give the whole lineage. And that's why I yeah. just say American citizen with Indian heritage. Like, don't ask me any more questions. I gave you yeah. all you had. You know, So you've got to figure out the language that, that yeah. uh, suits you the most. Suits it most. Nitin, look, thanks a lot. I didn't even realize yeah. we've been talking for close to 100 minutes. Uh, I know, it's crazy. Yeah. So this was great. I do have my last segment of my podcast episode, and it's a very quick segment called the rapid fire segment, where I just shoot quick questions. Hard, you strike a hard bargain, man. Let's go for it. Amazing. Look, I appreciate it. Right. So first rapid fire question is going to go in breeze. Business suit or hoodie? None. I actually have a black and black. You'll always see me in those. This is just, I'm just, it's cold here today. And uh, usually no suits for sure. It's either yeah. hoodie or just a black uh, slack uh, and, a, and a black uh, t a black uh, woolen t-shirt for the most part. That's my wow. thing. Wow. I'm not kidding. Uh, I also am always in black and black as well. Yeah, we but, see. We yeah. have, we got the memo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Batman or Iron Man? Batman. Lucid Motors? Sorry? Good old uh, Iron Man was on there when I was growing up. I grew up with oh, Batman, yeah. so Batman True. is it. Yeah. Batman. Lucid Motors or Tesla? Tesla. Captain Kirk or Captain Picard? Kirk. I grew up at uh, Star yeah. Wars, and they involved the whole imagination. So Captain yeah. Kirk, I'm sure. Yeah. Vitalik or Elon Musk? Oh, boy. That's a hard one. Um, yeah. I'll go with Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Web uh, 2.5. Multiple things and stuff. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. But... Yeah. Web 2.5 or Web 3? Web 2.5, for sure. Yeah. We need a path or... in between. We just can't jump there. We need a yeah, bridge. True. I'm focusing on the bridge first. Uh, so I agree. that's my reasoning. I agree. Dogecoin or Shiba Inu? 
man, none. I'm not <laughs> going beyond that path. They both suck. They have no utility. Yeah. I may have been very vocal against this in, uh, in other circles, so none. I'll, I'll yeah. pass that question for sure. <laughs> yeah. No saying, uh, likewise. Bitcoin or Ethereum? Bitcoin, for sure. Quantum computing, threat or opportunity for a blockchain? Uh, opportunity, for sure. Yeah. Centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges? I would say a quasi-decentralized exchange. Uh, centralized, moving towards decentralized, each of the 2.5 theme. Sure. So I'll use the word quasi-decentralized, which is the addition I would stick with. 2024, the year Bitcoin hits 100K? Yes or no? No. 2024, the year of DAOs? Yes or no? No. No. Got it. Definitely not. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Future of money in 2030, decentralized or centralized? Think it'll be a combination, tilting more towards decentralized models. Sure. At least the transaction system, but uh, more towards decentralized, I think. Yeah, I think the so way, too. The, yeah. way, the way the world is going with, yeah. if they keep having this political instability, then decentralized yeah. is the way to go. So. True. Time travel back to history or in future to cyborg era? Future. Future. Cyborg, yeah. yeah. Favorite crypto meme? Oh man, that's a hard one. Yeah. I don't know, laser eyes. I never understood those. Laser eyes. <laughs> I never understood what laser eye would. Like, yeah. you know, I know they had the memes around this whole thing. Yeah. Sure. I don't know what that meant. Like, you know, you could have that for anything. You know, your eyes can yeah. light up with a beautiful smile. <laughs> you don't need Bitcoin for that. <laughs> Got it. Uh, no. Best book you've read recently? Uh, the Courage to be Disliked. Uh, it's an amazing book if you're a dad or just a person to, you know, to debunk the myth and just truly really stay happy, you know. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's one. And this quantum biology, which gives me a lot of sort of, uh, you know, and singularity. But the, rate, the latest one that I read was uh, The Courage to be Disliked. Amazing. Uh, that was fantastic. Amazing. If you could live in any sci-fi universe depicted in a Hollywood movie, which would you choose? I would go back to Captain Kirk's uh, Enterprise. Amazing. It's sort pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, it was like, it you is. know, you're in different places. You have great leadership. It, it just looks good. Uh, yeah. You know, nothing more than that. It's yeah. simple life. So look, I wanted to include this joke that my professor of strategy management during my MBA days told me. And I wanted to plug that in, but I'll plug that in now. He told me that uh, when you work in middle management or top executive management for large banks, uh, especially in Australia, uh, you always choose IBM after choosing all the after looking at all the vendors because nobody ever got fired hiring IBM. Yeah, yeah, that's not so, true anymore though. It has changed a little bit over time. Okay. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people making the wrong choices, but it's less about IBM, but it's about their choices and. Got it. Wrong budgets, wrong choices. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. so I included this in that when you run the StarTech enterprises, is it going to be on IBM system or a quasi-IBM system? <laughs> Quasi-IBM system. Because IBM systems used to run the old, old yeah. mechanism, but I think we now have a lot more technology 
Got ahead it. of us. But uh, but you yeah. know, I'm just still a bankable. We all build yes. it, so I, yes. I'm proud of it too, right? So. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, final stages of the rapid fire round now, just five more questions. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? To convince people to see my way. <laughs> I'm never able to do that. But that would yeah. be my superpower to, to convince yeah. people with seeing an idea. Yeah. This is hard. Yeah. Yeah, true. What retro technology do you wish makes a comeback? <sighs> We don't know. I mean, technology always looks forward. Can't think of any. I I, I don't know. Trains. I'm happy with trains. Don't have to fly all the, everywhere else. I'm I'm happy sure. with with two tier trains. You actually have socialization. Sure. Uh, we Done. are more close, cohesive. I'll, I'll stick sure. with second class uh, AC, man. <laughs> that that would be just fine. <laughs> cool. What scientific fields beyond computer science hold promise for catalyzing the next wave of blockchain innovation? So energy is big for me, uh, figuring yeah. out new waves of energy, uh, not just for blockchain, but also for the the world itself, because the yeah. way we're growing, we need a lot of energy for that. And the existing energy sources are simply unsustainable from climate perspective and also the achievement that human race would want to do to reach the next level and feed and, and mobilize the 9 billion people that we're growing. So to me, energy tech is, is sustainable energy tech is, is super exciting and needs to be addressed. Sure. Um, so got it. Yeah, likewise, I feel the same way. Uh, last two now. Can we achieve scale without compromising decentralization principles? No. There's always there's always a debate between, you know, efficiency and resiliency, as in the supply chain and other worlds. And I have spent eight nine years of my life figuring out the cap theorem and the trilemma or challenge that that's all a compromise. So when yeah. someone's promising something else, because I don't think you can change the laws of physics. So we are limited by speed of light. So yeah. unless technology bridges that gap, there's there's always going to be a compromise. Sure. So shock absorbers give us the chance to react and react can give us a chance to thwart issues. So it's never, there'll always be a compromise. So you've got to sure. pick one or the other. You can never get both. Got it. Last question now. The single most important trait for entrepreneurs of the future? Just risk-taking. You need to be able to just take the risk and and embrace it and and not don't, and not live in the past. We all do. We all look always look back to our glory days. Yeah. And we should just assume the risks, which means yeah. no risk, no reward. And the reason why it's risk, because you can fail and it's all come yeah. coming down, but that's what I would say. Nathan, this was a marathon episode. I've never had this long conversation, but it just speaks volume of the quality of conversation that I had with you. So I really appreciate. How was your proof of work podcast experience? I'm keen to know. Actually, I never do this. I usually have 30 minutes I agree to, but this was an engaging conversation. And the beauty of this, I would say, uh, Shivan, all credit goes to you because it's the nice. facilitator that brings the best out of your interviewees, right? Is the mix of personal experience. And because we are collective humans, we're yes. not just robotic people who are just talking about professional time. So I think I like that piece that you've mingled in geopolitical, cultural, personal, yeah. professional technology. I think that's a strength of your Thanks podcast. Thanks a lot, sir. I don't, know, I don't know who has two hours, but... 
<laughs> and did you figure that out? <laughs> no. But no, thanks a lot. I really wanted to learn a lot from you. So that's why these were some of the burning questions. And I can't thank you enough for being so candid. Yeah, thank you for inviting and sharing me. all that for me.